So, welcome to this podcast. I um, I want to introduce you to somebody I've known for a few years now, who is just one of the most interesting human beings I think I've ever really come across. In the sense that she's led a life that really should be in a book somewhere. So, with that big intro, Lucia, can you introduce yourself to my audience? Now, how do I do that, Steve, when you introduce me as the most interesting person who likes to use the F word? (laughs) I can certainly leave up to the second part of the introduction. As you very well know, I I don't know if I can can live up to the first part, but I am Lucia, and thank you for pronouncing my name correctly, which doesn't happen very often. I met Steve through my work in software development for the financial inclusion industry mostly. And and I enjoy having conversations with him that involve wine, which (laughs) may be why he thinks I'm an interesting person. We'll see whether whether if we do this without wine, it's still going to work. I am definitely age-wise into the second half time and I like it. We grew up in a we cannot we grew up in a similar time mm-hmm. in two different corners of this continent we call Europe. I am what we would say this side of Europe, a real Yugo. I I and, and, and I'm old enough that I've been born, I've outlived my country. I've been born in a country that no longer exists. But then so has everybody in my family for the last, I don't know, five or six generations. Mm-hmm. We, we recently looked at all the birth certificates. We have the birth certificates. Everybody was born in the same house. We never moved. But everybody was born in a different country. <laughs> <laughs> everybody has a different country on their birth certificate. But the street is the same. <laughs> And this is why you're so interesting. I mean, that's a story that just in my head doesn't doesn't make sense. That's a story. So I'm a Macedonian Slovenian that lived in Sarajevo, and and the only house I own is in Croatia. And I still kind of have a relationship with Belgrade, who used to be my capital for half of my life, and then it stopped being my capital and became someone else's capital. Uh, and and my hometown though got to become a capital. So from the <laughs> from the province, I became the girl from the capital, which is which is which is kind of nice. Uh, except it involved several civil wars in the process. So recently, especially, and I think that's how Steve and I came to that topic. I have been reminded a lot uh, of mm. uh, of the breakup of Yugoslavia and what it brought to everybody and et cetera. And um, yeah, it has made me think about a lot of things among which my generation and how enthusiastic we used to be when the Berlin Wall fell and when we all thought we are building some better, uh, you know, more proud to be of Europe. And now here I am, uh, uh, coming close to mid fifties, and thinking, did we really? Did we? Did we really? Uh, and what are we living to? To whoever we're living it to. And then my career took me places among which I spent 
significant amount of time in the last 15 years in, in the other hemisphere. And, and I fell in love with the other hemisphere. And uh, I, I am very passionate about Africa, the continent, and many of the very quick developing countries there and the ways they're becoming movers and shakers in, in, in many industries, also in this industry in which I now engage, which is the, the financial services and especially the technology that enables financial services, which is somehow how the two of us crossed roads. How, how I, I don't know if I'm introducing myself well, but that's... No, I, 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 I think people are going to get a sense for, for, for who you are from that. And, and, and I think, yeah, we, we, we met because of that, but I think we've started to become friends because of uh, lots of other similarities in sort of the way we think. But our conversation certainly sprang out of, of the current tra- troubles that are happening at this moment in time. So I think, and we'll probably touch on that. Now, I want to be co- I want to be conscious of people's feelings out in, in public. So I, I, I don't want to be, I want to be honest, but I, you know, let, let's, let's just see where the conversation goes. I think from a framing point of view, though, um, just so that everybody is, is more aware, because you're very self-deprecating. This. So how many languages do you speak? Well, I speak many, okay, that's true. But look at it that way. Most of the languages I speak are spoken by less than five, six million people, many of them less than two. And I speak a lot. Yes. But you speak a lot and you speak a language that is barely spoken by one million people, you quickly run out of people to speak to. If you encounter the people you don't even like speaking to. So, so okay, so, so, so narrow it down. How many? So I don't know, maybe seven or something. I mean, look, I grew up in a multilingual country, in a multilingual family. So I, nobody asked me. From the start, there were three, you know, and everybody was talking and they were all used in parallel and you just thought, okay, this is how it's got to be, yeah? And then we had... English and then French in school. So my three languages are my two mother tongues, Macedonian and Slovenian. And then I grew up in a country where something which we then called the Serbo-Croatian language, which since became several languages, that's a whole other stories, uh, was the predominant in terms of how many people spoke it. So Macedonian, one and a half million people who speak it. Slovenian, barely 2 million people who speak it. Everybody else in that country, which is around 20 other million, spoke some version of that Serb slash Croat slash Bosnian today, Montenegrin, whatever. And then you, of course, you and in the family, all three were used. All right. And then English and French you have at school and da-da-da-da-da. And then you start moving around and you make attempts. Many of this failed, but you make attempts to learn Dutch or to learn Hungarian. or to... Then when I started working with the former Soviet Union at the beginning of the 90s, nobody spoke English. Mm-hmm. You know, Russian was the lingua franca there. And then you say, okay, you know, I, I, I already speak three Slavic languages. How hard can this be? So then you go <laughs> start learning Russian. 
And then, and then at some point you move to Slovakia and you say, well, I already speak several completely useless languages, Macedonian, Slovenian, Croatian, uh, Hungarian, however well one can speak that language. And that's, uh, these are only useful in the countries where you are and nowhere else. So why I might as well learn Slovak. So I went and I learned Slovak, then added another one of these languages I studied Albanian also, one of the failures to, to get rid of so. And then I moved to Bulgaria. And there is, I mean, if you speak all these other Slavic languages, how can you ignore another Slavic language? So there has been all kinds of that. At one point, I tried to learn Zulu. It's so cool. I mean, it's just like, I just like the clicky thing they do that. You know, and then I am, I have Swahili somewhere in my to-do list. And I always say every time I go to Nairobi, I say this times it will happen one day. So I, but I like languages a lot. I get so, it. And then the more you learn, the more, the easier it becomes to learn others because yeah. somehow they do things in your head that then makes it easier for you. And, and I think that's one of the things that, that I like about you. There's, it, and, it, and don't take this the wrong way, but it is that childlike curiosity. Of like, oh, well, why not? You know, most adults go, ah, oh, no, that's too difficult. But you, you still get, you still have that innocence to go, well, why not? I'm here. I might as well learn. I might as well. And you go to, to Nairobi, like you said, oh, I need to go to Swahili. I need to get this language. I need. So it seems to be an addiction of yours, but I think you approach life like that, don't you? I mean, look, I think, I like this world extremely enormously much. I think it's an incredibly fascinating place in so many ways with all the sadness and sorrow and pain and everything we carry alongside. I still think it's such a fascinating place. And 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 to me, recently somebody teased me because I moved to, uh, to Sofia several years ago. Uh, and after a, almost a decade of living more or less in Bratislava. So my friends there, and some of the people who know me there know me from when I lived in Budapest before or when I lived in Amsterdam before that or when I lived wherever. I have moved a lot. Like, what do you say? Like a bad penny. <laughs> so somebody asked me, so, oh, how do you like Sofia? And I love Sophia. So I go, and I'm telling how much I love Sophia. When one of the people who know me from several cities behind says, why do you even ask her? When has she not liked the place? <laughs> and this made me, this made me both, you know, on one side, it's true. And, and, and it makes me feel good because there is something to be liked in everything. If you mm. want to see it, huh? But it also means I'm like, do I sugarcoat things? Do I wear this pink glass? I mean, no, of course I can tell you a bunch of things about Sofia, which are, could be improved or, or are not my favorite or are just plain wrong. They don't recycle. What's wrong with you? you know? <laughs> but, but I'm like, but it's in a way, I believe it's a choice in life, in everything, when you meet the person. It's a choice. Yeah. You talk to the things in this person that you like. You talk to the 
interesting bits or you talk to the other. And oftentimes the places or the people or the whatever, I believe, respond to you from that in which where you address them, you know? And 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 I I just think I'm a selfish little thing, I would say, bastard, but then I don't want to immediately validate you. <laughs> uh, no, it's all right. I, yeah. Because I know I'm, the language is going to get rich as we go through yeah. this, so don't worry. <laughs> yeah, because I'm like, if you talk to the interesting part to a person, they respond from that part, and you end up having a super interesting conversation. And then you walk away really having enjoyed this person. But this person may have that whatever side, but you didn't, you just chose not to. It's not that I'm stupid. I didn't see it. I don't know it's there, but I would have want to engage with that. Yeah. So I think the whole thing with discovering things and with with wanting to learn, with I recently was reading Turkish grammar in English. I don't speak Turkish. But I'm really curious about, I have a theory, I'm not a linguist, but I, I have been reflecting to which degree the way Macedonian and Bulgarian as languages are different from the rest of the Slavic languages. Could it be connected to the fact that the speakers of these languages have for 500 years been part of the Ottoman Empire Mm-hmm. where the predominant lingua franca was Turkish, which grammatically has a lot of interesting similarities with Hungarian in that about how they deal with gender or not deal with gender, where do they put the definite article, do they have or not have cases. So I got curious, but I realized I don't know enough about Turkish grammar to entertain this silly thinking. So I bought a book on Turkish grammar and somebody said to me that I'm completely pretentious, whatever, because I'm now reading a grammar in a language I don't even speak. I'm like, I felt a little bit embarrassed, but I'm like, but I like, I like stuff like that. You like languages, I know, which is the reason why I asked about this. And I think, and again, it, it, it plays into that fascinating thing about you because it's not just the language, it's the history of it. And, and that's where... You got- and everything you learn through learning a language, I mean, there's so much you learn, right? Yeah. I'm now, I'm discovering this amazingly rich, beautiful world of Bulgarian poetry. They have mind-blowing poetry much of which has not been translated to other languages. So the only way to enter it is by learning the language. And you learn, you learn, you know, you learn. My my teacher and I have similar peculiar tastes in certain things. So I like this chansons, the music of the festivals of the 70s, you know? Mm -hmm. So, and she likes it too. And I know this in other countries, but Bulgaria is to me a complete blank. I know nothing. So she's teaching me these songs, you know, and this is just, you can never, I would never have encountered these songs that were popular in that generation. You know, when I walk and she wasn't even in a five years plan. And, 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 if I hadn't, if I hadn't reached out to the language, you know, so I don't know. There is something to be. So, so, you know, so, you know. 
But I think, I think, and this is where I want to take the conversation because this again, it it's, it speaks to this sense of curiosity with you and an openness to experiment, to pray, to try different things. And career-wise, if we wind it all the way back to where our conversation, we were talking about when you were 20, 21 years old and sort of just, you know, when I, I'd just come out of school then, you know, I, I was, got, I was on my way to university, but you were doing what? What 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 what, I mean, look, what was going on at that that stage in your life? I was going to have a very boring career. I loved maths, mathematics, and I took this path of mathematics. And I went to the high school that focused on maths, and I and then I went to uni to study theoretical maths and. I would have gone that path and, as I often like to say, would have been interested in an issue that only me and two Indian people care about, you know, and and set at some institute somewhere where a nice window and, you know, do research on the subject. If it hadn't been for Slobodan Milosevic, the kind of Putin of those days, another country, another whatever, a very similar style. And um, and uh, all the wars that broke that country then. And I was, I was active in the students' organizations and in the whatever, so I somehow got involved, you know. And I... I ended up in a completely different career because of my involvement in the youth and student movements and and then and then my work with the Yugo Wars. But the most remarkable thing was I was involved in the transformation of what was then called the Macedonian youth, what what was then called the organization of socialist youth, which was mm-hmm. this type of an organization, which in Yugoslavia transformed itself. This was still Yugoslavia, it's still communism, by a purely democratic way, which is super interesting. It's still communism and an organization that was put in place to indoctrinate and brainwash young people had a bylaw in which it allowed that if two-thirds of its assembly voted for its dissolution, it can dissolve itself. And the people used that. And we were all the the, the then members of the Congress or whatever the the assembly was called. We were all waiting to see if the police will arrest them. I think these were the first signs, you know, that, that the communists didn't feel that powerful anymore. And the, the young people just voted and, and, and they dissolved the organization. And then came the group like me who started building these new organizations in a much more democratic set, set in a much more democratic way and modeled after similar organization in Western Europe. And that's how I got in touch with the Council of Europe, this wonderful, wonderful organization called the Council of Europe and the Council of Europe's Youth Directorate. All of this while still studying maths as a pastime and believing I will become the mathematician with the two Indian friends, right? (laughs) And, And then... You know, the whole thing is coming and the Berlin Wall is falling and the Council of Europe is reaching out 
to this new Europe. And we, the people who work with the Council of Europe, are there to welcome all these, you know, people from Azerbaijan through Ukraine, through uh, whatever part of Russia, into the fold of the Council of Europe. And, you know, the Council of Europe is the organization that upholds the European Court on Human Rights and the whole concept of of functioning by rule of law and democracy and, and a lot about human rights. And we did a lot of work on human rights education in a non-formal setting. So not, not so much learning articles of declarations, but how do you learn the value of the freedom of assembly? How do you believe, how do you come to a point of believing it's important? How do you come to a point to believing that diversity is something we can embrace and uphold and that we are all responsible for for somehow protecting and nurturing and you know how do you how do you learn that? Yeah. Mm. And then war, bang. Yeah. My well, for most people, young people, I'm young at this stage, well, for most people the fall of communism and everything that came after is a positive process for the people of then Yugoslavia, it's not. It spirals the country into four long, bloody civil wars and that, that take years and, 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 and so many lives and so many displaced people and so many atrocities, you know? And I somehow ended up partially working in, in some of that because I thought, I thought these are my neighbors. I, I, I sure hope if it's happening to me, somebody will come to help. And then, you know, in between those things, you're coming back, still trying to deal with your degrees there, your da, 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 and then boom, you end up going to the Netherlands, helping a large organization develop their strategy for the Balkans. After then, boom, you end up. So somewhere along the way, I retrained and I studied not-for-profit management and I did an MBA in Glasgow of all places. <laughs> Sorry, in Edinburgh of all places, but I fell in love with Glasgow, which the, the, Edin, the, Edin, the Edin bourgeoisie never forgave me. What makes sense? Anybody who knows you make that that does make sense, right? I mean, Glasgow smile. What was it? They had this. They had this slogan: that Glasgow smiles better. Yeah, but you also you could you could see it like Glasgow apostrophe s miles better. Miles yeah? better. Yeah, 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 yeah. Glasgow is Glasgow's miles better, but it was really Glasgow smiles better but i'm sure they did it on purpose right so i think language. it's Come on, you know you know the language it's the, it's the way you it's the way it's you present the, the language way. It's the way. so so yeah and i somehow through all that work i ended up working in international development and i eventually gave up on the whole maths idea for a very long time and i went woof into into yeah trying to engage with all kinds of local and international stakeholders and hopefully figuring out ways to make the world a slightly more bearable place for the most vulnerable people in the world. 
and I worked a lot in 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 in, in all the areas connected to housing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how do how do the bottom two billion people live? How do they how do they live? How do uh, coming again from the rights, the right to housing, the right to you're a human, therefore you should have a safe place where your children sleep and can grow or not, as mm. you know, many people would challenge me. And and I somehow ended up obviously in housing, there's so many issues from land, from land rights, from infrastructure, from da 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 da. But a huge issue is finance. How do you finance housing? And especially how do you finance housing sustainably or how do you enable the people in that category finance their housing or housing improvements? Yeah, or at mm-hmm. least co-finance. Or, and then, boom, there is this whole area of housing finance for, for the bottom of the pyramid, Yeah. And and that led me into microfinance, who was originally designed or devised as income generation. So so the idea of microfinance, when Mr. Yunus and the rest of them who got the Nobel Prize for it and touched it, did it, the idea was you enable the poor to be economically active and, and then through their economic activity, they can repay their, yeah? And then they can take on more credit and, they, and that's how you are helping them progress, yeah? Right. Fine, but these people live have to live somewhere. And if the roof is leaking, they cannot wait until they become, until they become lower lower working class, and then maybe they can afford some kind of finance to fix their roof. No, they're going to go and fix their roof because mm-hmm. it's leaking. So how do, you, how do you engage with them and how do you make this kind of, this type of finance work for this kind of people? Because, you know, mortgage is not something that you can, you can offer there. So what can you offer? And how do you, you know, and then comes with it, come all the obstacles, you know, the amounts that this, this, this kind of clientele engages in are super tiny, small. They, the clients are the riskiest people from a standpoint of a financial institution. Many of these people don't even have a birth certificate. They don't exist. You tell me a story that I think encapsulates this about the trying to send $2 home. Yeah, I mean, hey, and, and just this, tell, and tell this that story. You come, I'll tell you, and this is how you come to then technology, yeah? Because technology changed dramatically what we could do there. So that story is in the, in after the civil war in Tajikistan, probably the first half of the 90s, Tajikistan was, Tajikistan still is one of the most destitute countries in the world. You know, in spite of what we all think of, oh, and how we are, we being the the privileged white people of the whatever is considered the Western civilization, yeah, the entitled, uh, uh, when we think poverty and we think Africa, or we maybe even think Asia, or maybe nobody thinks Tajikistan. Many people haven't even heard of exactly. Tajikistan ever. And yet, 
When you go in the south, there's that, that border between Tajikistan and Afghanistan. This is the end of the former Soviet empire. Yeah, the very end. A very interesting old, old culture. Farsi, Farsi culture. Actually, these are the people who gave us Samarkand. And then somebody came and cut it off from them and put it in Uzbekistan because, because that's what you do. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and so that whole south of Tajikistan, the, to, up to the border with Afghanistan, there is like super hot in the summer, like we're talking 50 plus centigrade in the summer, freezing in the winter. Everything is covered in this fine, fine dust. The houses are made from it. Uh, the road, everything is made from it. There is no drinking water to save your life. There is, there is one lady who told me that, oh, she loves the summer because the summer is so much better for her because in winter, she's, she's a lady the age I'm now, and married to a whatever thirty years older husband because her family married her away, yeah, when she was thirteen or something, and and they live off of his pension, which at this is which at that time was something like eight dollars per month, and in the winter it gets really really hard, but in the summer, she says it's just it's just. A bonanza is wonderful in the summer. I said, oh, because it's warm. I'm trying to know, she says, because that's when we pick the cotton. And I can, I can earn, I can earn another $12 per month. Wow. And I'm like, wow, you know, $12 per month. And I'm like, how much, how much cotton do you have to pick? For $12 per month, if it takes you a month. Oh, she says, but the children help me. I said, but how much? how much cotton, and I don't know if you have ever seen how cotton grows and how cotton is picked. It's thirsty work. Um, mm. 200 kilos she has to pick. <laughs> so just as, just as you're sitting there and you're trying to digest that, and that woman is telling you that that's a good thing. It's a happy thing. Okay, so this is, this is what we are talking about. So after the Civil War, every man, able-bodied man, between the age of, I don't know, 15 and 75, this is the years of the big economic growth in Russia, they all went to work to a construction site in Vladivostok, wherever, yeah? So now here he is, our guy, our Tajik guy, working there as an unskilled laborer at some whatever building or some construction site that in the end of the day, ding, 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 he's being paid $12 in cash, of course, which is a great pay per day. We're talking about, yeah? And he <coughs> sleeps in some dorm and he eats at the, at uh, whatever cookery there, so he say spends five dollars to pay for his for his accommodation and his food. And so he has a chunk of money left. He has a whole of eight dollars left or something. Now, if he could send two, 
of those from the middle of Russia to southern Tajikistan, a whole family of his mother, his grandmother, his wife, his old blind father, 12 cousins, three children and a goat will eat. And if he can't send the $2, they won't. So you can imagine the kind of stuff these people would do to be able to send money. And, 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 and you know, of course, he can't send $2 every day. But so he's trying to save it. So that then when somebody holds, he gives it to them to trust. So, but when you're saving, our guy doesn't have a bank account, doesn't have, he saves them by putting them in his sock. How many times the money gets stolen? How many times he trusted someone who then disappeared with it? How many times? How many? So how? So we then were boggling our brains to figure out ways and mechanisms to make transfers between countries and countries like this work for such amounts like two dollars. Mm -hmm. I mean, nowadays, everybody has a revolution. Yeah, we don't even think about it. We don't even, we don't even, the other day we used an app where a group of us were traveling together and we all associated our revolution accounts with the app. And then whatever we were paying, whatever I pay for everybody's lunch, it gets automatically distributed to our, and then one of them is in Romanian lay, the other one is in Bulgarian leva, the third one is in Kenyan, in Kenyan Chile. Who cares? It all works and it's all divided. You, you have no idea what I would have given for mm. something like that at, 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 you know, in the 90s. And there is the interesting thing about about technology and about the revolutes and about all these cool things we can do with our phones, we, again, we, the privileged middle class, whatever, white people, white people as I call us, it's not my, my, my Slovak or my Bulgarian or my Dutch or my whatever or your British bank who came up with this innovation. No, it is the people like me and a whole bunch of smart gigs in some Tajikistan or in some Uganda or in some Malawi who were really struggling mm. with these kinds of problems that came up with this innovation to solve their problem, to solve my guys from the construction site in, in Novosibirsk's problem mm. and the lady with the cotton picking so she can feed her children in the winter also yeah mm. and then this all got taken into the into the mainstream financial industry and then and then and then and then and then and that's how i ended up i moved along with it and now i work in software development and i'm somehow made this whole circle back to my maths and my geeks and my whatever and now i work with them to to develop software that makes all kinds of things like this possible for the, the financial inclusion mm -hmm. sector, but also for the general financial industry. And, and yeah. So, so that's, a, that's a sort of a journey that you've grown on. And, and the theme I get when I talk to you is that all of this passion for helping people who are less off than you, who are struggling, who are in 
challenging environments comes from an exposure to recognizing, again, go back to your privilege. You know, you, 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 when you're in an environment where you see people and you're like, well, I, I don't understand that because I've, but I, I want to try and help it. I didn't grow up that way. I want to try and help it. And that seems to be a, a common theme. And I want to try and connect the dots between your history and, and where we are today with what's going on in, in the Ukraine and Russia and things like that. Because I think that's a little bit of a topic I'd like to talk about if we can. But to, but to position it, what surprised me at that, go back to that 20, 20 21, 22, 23 year, um, I'm living in the UK, oblivious because of privilege and stuff like that to the war that you were experiencing. I don't want to go to into. I don't want to take this down a very very dark alley. But what's it? What was it like? What was it, what was your experience of that period in time? I mean, it's a very interesting question. It really and it's like there is one. How shall I say? One red thread throughout my life. It is the breakup of that country and the wars and uh, and uh, everything that. And I'm I I don't. I'm still grappling you would think after so many years i would have figured certain things out you don't you never do you know that there, there are a couple of interesting elements i mean one i still think at least for my generation i'm born in, in 1969 um it was a wonderful place to grow up that that country called yugoslavia on one side the hard line the communist hard line has long been softened I mean, it was still not a free country. Let's not have any illusions. Mm. But it wasn't the oppressive thing that that the, the countries of the Warsaw Pact were. Yugoslavia right. was in, on its own and doing its own version of communism, yeah? So it, the, the edge was taken off. Yet at the same time, there were certain values that were very visibly part of the of the of the nomenclature, of the vocabulary and values like solidarity, like appreciation for diversity, like, uh, you know, which were there. I grew up in a multicultural environment in, you know, I grew up in a country in which the main, the main uh, uh, motway was called brotherhood and unity. And, and this may sound funny and crazy, but this brotherhood and unity was there to symbolize equality and equal participation and uh, appreciation of diversity. So I think on one side, it was that. Then on the other side, um, the encountering of this whole notion of the European Declaration of Human Rights and the way Europe dealt with itself post-World War II, you know, the way the French and the Germans found a way to some kind of a, to some kind of a reconciliation, the way Poland and Germany have, you know, the way, the way we as a country said never more, we mm. as a continent said never more or mm. never again, and then went to try to instrumentalize that to the point of having a European Court of Human Rights. It, it is such a unique institution that the countries endorse this court to make decisions against them and to then force them to change things to comply. This is, and they fund it 
And they, they, you know, it's a, it's a super wonderful example of what humankind is capable of doing. And then those values there, that whole platform, you very quickly learn if you are interested in how societies work and how, you know, you very quickly learn that democracy cannot function without a certain societal value system that upholds it. Mm-hmm. Democracy is not, which many of the former communist countries made the mistake, how you change your laws only, or how you create from a one-party system a multi-party system. How, and then somehow you are a democracy. No. <laughs> you are. You can very easily become a kleptocracy, which many became. Or you can become an, uh, an oligarchy, or you can become a, whatever you can become. You still have a multi-party system. You have a this, you have a this, you have a that. But democracy only works if people fundamentally believe, enough people fundamentally believe in a certain value set. Mm-hmm. And that value set involves that. I protect your rights and freedoms, whoever you may be. If you are a minority, even more so, if I'm a majority, it is my job to make sure you are represented and your voice is heard because because otherwise it never does. Mm. Uh, Solidarity is is an absolute must. Yeah, without it. it, uh, And, you know, and many of this, and then we can go and go to my right to, to housing or the right to clean environment and air or to to right to be free of war, huh? mm. which can bring us to the conversations of today. Yeah, today. And, and let's just call it when we say today and when we say, I, I just to be super clear here, my, my whole upset is not with Putin invading Ukraine. My whole upset is with this world in which that is possible. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. That, that Putin exists that we have been through so many Putins in, 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 in human history, you know, that, that countries somehow get grabbed and held captive by lunatic, you know, dictators uh, with, with genocidal kind of proclinations. We have mm. seen that. We have seen that over and over and over everywhere around the world, from media, I mean, through my Slobodan Milosevic, through the guys who invented apartheid, through not to go to talk about Hitler and his buddies, and I don't know, so why is Putin? No big surprise, no big surprise that people end up voting for them somehow. They have a way. Many of these leaders have been elected democratic. Yeah? And then, but that the world is in such a place that we just stand there and watch in, 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 in disbelief. And with everything that we do, it's somehow we fall short from being able to just stop him. Mm. You know? And on top of it then, while we are all shaking over this, and we are, and while there are many wonderful examples of solidarity, and of you know people coming together, and I mean, and I'm like, okay, Europe is not completely dead, and I'm thinking, oh, Mr. Putin has invested so much in the last two decades to disenfranchise us, and then in two days he brought us back together. 
Well, thank you. Uh, but then I'm also sitting there thinking, what, 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 what about Yemen? What, 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 excuse me, what, what about Yemen and, and those other bastards? Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's the exact same situation. It's just other players, different, slightly different skin color. But we don't, we didn't, we didn't, what, about, what about the way we responded to all the Syrian refugees? Mm-hmm. Toys, toys on the bridge, prams on the, on the railway stations in Poland, so where the Ukrainian mummies come with the babies. They can, how yeah. heartwarming that Good. is. Yeah. Barbed wire for the Syrian refugees. Barbed wire. Wow. So... I don't know whether I'm just like, you know, yeah, whether I'm looking for something to, to, to justify for my own middle-aged blues or whatever, but I'm just like, I, something is so broken about, about us humans that, that there are times when it's hard to keep on loving ourselves, you know. And that goes back to, the, the contradiction of, of, you know, both you and I love this world, love, love people, love society. You know, we love humans. That's what we, we thrive off. But the darker side of humanity is it, it, it's depressing. I mean, it, it's embarrassing, to be honest with you. You, you. To your point, you would have thought by now from an evolutionary perspective that we would have got beyond this. Yes. And yet, and here we go again. You know, in the ways that we would stop electing again and again and again lunatics, you know, with all the dead entails. And and there's many of the people I label as lunatics, or you call them whatever you like, the from that kleptocrat that runs Hungary and is destroying that country with together with his mafia through the people who run Poland, through the, you know, there's just like, so through whoever was running this beautiful country I live in until recently, through, you know, there's so many of them. True, mind you, you're you're a lovely prime minister who I also have <laughs> opinions of not to talk about the orange stable genius and 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 all of all of that lot, you know, and what they represent. And then also the people who believe that Oprah Winfrey and Hillary Clinton are drinking the blood of children and, and whatever platforms that this QAnon and whatever, but whatever that that they did, that they brought the people at the Capitol, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've told, I mean, I've told Hillary so many times, stop drinking children's blood, sister. <laughs> okay, we, 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 we need to let people know because they're not going to see this. We aren't actually drinking, I promise. There is no, <laughs> there's no alcohol involved in this particular conversation. But no. I think... It, you, you're right, it, and and I mean, we don't have long left, and yet we're, we're sort of spraying into the conversation of the media and how this stuff is presented and communicated or miscommunicated, depending on whose political agenda you want to you want to push. And the role the internet plays in this, oh. and 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 the role I was recently back with the Council of Europe, and I'm sorry this became so much about the Council of Europe, but it is in a way. Oh. And, and about everybody who can play a role in. And the role the internet plays, this whole 
metaphor of drinking blood for me is the metaphor of the kind of nonsense you can perpetuate through the social media. What the internet made possible is both fascinating and 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 devastating. Yeah. yeah. And then it becomes even more important. There's this civil education. There's this, but can't we use the same tools to spread the other values? You know, mm. can't we use the same tools to equip people to better differentiate between between one and the other? And is that the only thing? Recently, somebody published an article here, and I said, "Thank you." Some famous uh, uh, Bulgarian economist who says why it is so possible in Bulgaria to spread some of this type of conspiracy theories and da 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 da, da. and and now there is a huge Putinophilia and 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 kind of justification for the for the invasion of Ukraine and I don't know what and they link it to the humongously large disparity between the haves and the have-nots in, in the country. And they are associated and they make an interesting parallel with the United States of America, which in so many ways is, is in parallel what we used to call a first world and a third world country at the same time. Same place, yeah. And, 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 and then how it is totally possible to kind of this disinfect Frenchman, this franchise, yeah. This, this is this disenfranchising or uh, of the society makes it then possible to kind of pitch these groups against each other through the social media in the most outrageous of ways. But it's a very complex, complex world. But think of think of history. It's it's a it's it's a repeated story. You know, we've heard of 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 you know, empires growing and then being torn down from within by the lower classes who have been, you know, trod on for so many years that they eventually revolt against. I mean, you know, the French Revolution is one. You could go back and back and back and back and back. And and it's a common theme in it's human It's a common human theme history. in human And obviously it is in that way in which we are so imperfect. You know, and yet at the same time, I recently read some book about what is that famous Swedish Swedish professor, the one who does all the data analysis and that cool charts that he does all these TED talks. I'll remember. I never remember any names. I'm and, and he talks about very distinctly about when you interpret data, the world has come forward an enormously long way, you know, and those of us who, who engage in, in international development for several decades, we know that. Mm-hmm. We know where we have pushed poverty, where we have pushed human uh, women's rights or LGBT whatever rights, where we have pushed uh, a black with Black Lives Matter, where we have come with Me Too, where we have, and I'm just mentioning the labels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But as humankind, we have made, I mean, our life expectancy, just, you know, uh, medicine, access to education, literacy, you name it. So in a way, we are moving in the right direction. It's not that we aren't, but we are not walking a straight line. 
and and we're taking a lot of turns and the life of just one of us is not always enough to to no. spot the trend yeah so well, I think that was, I think that, that's the, was that relationship status. It's complicated. It's complicated. It is complicated. Yeah, and I think that 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 for me is 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 the great generational handover. I think the next generation, maybe the generation after that. I think the advantage of the internet is that the, there is nowhere to hide. So you know the 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 disenfranchising and the recognition as an alternative of the of the difference and the acceptance and the go back to that common values. I think for me, and here's my two pennies on the future, I think culture will dissolve and global values will rise. Because if you think about you and I growing up, travel and access to seeing the world outside of um, small confines was very, very difficult. But then in our latter years, it suddenly accelerated. In the last 20, 30 years, it's accelerated. And it's accelerating more. And the internet is opening up the world so that, you know, in when we saw it in Kenya, you know, in in a mud hut in the Mara, you know, there's a, there's a guy there with a, 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 an internet enabled tablet. Children are growing up, seeing what's happening around the world, showing. And as much as that is proving a challenge because it shows them what they don't have, it's also driving a mentality of equilibrium in, I think, eventually. It just won't happen in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. And I think you are right. And maybe it will never happen, but as long as it continues to move in the right direction, and as long as enough of us believe it's important. You know, I had a very long conversation with one of my best friends who and 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 I was saying, but why didn't we, why couldn't we, why do not people believe this is important? And she says, but they never did. Mm. Not it was never the objective that all people believe in certain things. It was always the objective that enough people believe so that the thing can keep on moving, so that they are loud enough that certain things become unacceptable, the way, the way you know, whatever slavery became unacceptable, the way uh, apartheid became unacceptable, the way communism became unacceptable, the way fascism became unacceptable, you know. And and that doesn't mean that everybody bought into the idea. They didn't. We know they still didn't. We, my frustration is that they are still differentiating between the Ukrainian refugees and the different color refugees. Mm. God. But that enough people think that that is unacceptable and that they are loud enough, I think, is what, you know, what makes certain things happen. So the next thing that would be to be unacceptable then is violence. Yeah. I, I mean, mean we could, if we could get to that point. Invading another country. I thought, I thought that was clear. Invading another country was not okay. You know, somebody said to me, blah, 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 something about, oh, yeah, there was a huge fight I had over, over the banning of the Russia today in, in, in Western Europe and, and whether or not censorship is ever acceptable or da, 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 the right to, to voice and to, you know, the freedom of expression and whatever, whatever. And I'm like, well, it's a very, very, very difficult conversation. It's a very, it's not black and white, but I'm like, but do you also consider 
the right to not have your children bombed while they sleep in their bedroom. Yeah. Do you consider that, you know? Because that right has been suspended by someone who is using Russia today as their tool, as their war tool, the same way they're using their tanks or their whatever. So how do you how do you engage with that? Yeah. So it's yeah. Yeah. It's difficult. And I think we sort of run out of time now, but and I think and that's probably a good place to, to end it really, because I think it, you're right. It's when enough people and and maybe again naivety. I was with you. I thought after the the world war and the smaller skirmishes that have been going on, you know, the other wars that have been going around the world, I say smaller skirmishes like I'm diminutive, uh, reducing them. I can't remember the word, got a mental block on it. Yeah. And I don't mean to be, I don't diminishing mean to do that. But them, yeah. Yeah. yeah, diminishing them, that's it, yeah. yeah. I don't mean to do that. But I would have thought that invasion of another country is, yeah, well, why would you do that? That's unacceptable. And, that, and that's my naivety. And maybe this is a wake-up call to us, that, you know, that we do have to have a voice. We do all have to make our opinions known and not just sit back and go, yeah, well, that's never going to happen. Because exactly. obviously it is. I agree with you 100%. And, I, and you know what? It's also the other thing that is important there and that I keep saying to people all the time, this war, if you will, uh, the war that you and I are talking about between, say, the forces who are in favor of one type of humankind and the force win, this has always been a one-on-one war. Somebody said to me, why are you so confrontational? Recently, I made a scandal when somebody at a table, at a dining table, said something which I found unacceptable vis-a-vis the Roma, the Roma people. And, and I just, uh, I reacted in, in an unpleasant way. I mean, there's not a very many pleasant ways to call someone a racist, you know, so, so and, 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 you know, or to at least call their comment racist. I didn't call the person, but I said, but you, you do, you may, that may not be your intention, but your comment is. So, and I find it offensive and I find it, you know, and then, one of my friends afterwards challenged me, said, do you always have to be so uncomfortable? I'm like, but it is uncomfortable, you know? Mm-hmm. Racism is very uncomfortable. Ask yeah. anybody who has ever faced it. I didn't even face it. I Nobody, nobody was racist towards me. It's impossible. I just called it. You know, I'm like, I was so, I was so angry that it's even a topic in a civilized company in the 20th that that this was somehow reduced to a whether it is convenient for a dinner conversation to call a racist comment racist. Couldn't I just let it go? And there and then I ran and because I didn't enjoy it. I don't enjoy spoiling no. everybody's dinner. I don't enjoy it. and I said I'm sorry. It's my duty. I, I didn't like it. I would have loved to let it go and just have a nice evening and then maybe say that. And even I even don't think the person who made the comment is a racist. I think they're ignorant or they're unaware or they're a little bit thick, whatever. I really believe that. 
but it doesn't matter. And that's what I said. I didn't have a choice. They had. They had a choice. I Once the comment is made, I didn't have a choice. There was really no choice but to call it out. And I keep telling it to everybody around me. Never feel uncomfortable. And that battle is that exactly that's the battle. It's a one-on-one. It's every time you curb them back. You curb, and, and, and racism is a perfectly justified ideology for the racists. I don't have a problem with them believing whatever they want. But I will do everything I can to make it impossible for them to exist in any form of civilized gathering. Go there in the corner with your other five neo-Nazi friends. That's where you belong, at the fringe of society. You dumb ass. End of conversation. What a way to end the conversation. Yes, and that's my message to Mr. Putin. Okay, can can we make this my message to Mr. Putin? That is your message to Mr. Putin, and I'm more than happy to uh, to to present that personally, if possible. Lou, uh, you have not failed me. You are you are a, a fascinating mind, and I I love talking to you. So um, I think we do this again some other time. But for now, uh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.